Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Michael Harari, Ph.D., who is Associate Professor at the Management Programs Department at Florida Atlantic University. We will discuss employability. Mike has published widely in the areas of job performance and performance appraisal, personality, talent acquisition, and careers. His research has been published in leading academic journals and has been covered widely in BBC, Fox Business, Forbes, and Psychology Today. He serves on three journal editorial boards. He partners with organizations from local government agencies to international human resources, consulting companies, and vendors as a research partner and subject matter expert. Mike, welcome. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Let's start with a really basic question. What are we referring to when we say employability? What exactly does that mean? Great question. And actually, like... uh, like pretty much everything else in academia and in research, there's there's a lot to it. There's a number of lenses we can put on to try to understand what employability is. So, you know, it may seem simple at first, but there's a lot of complexities there that we can unpack. Um, because we can say at the most basic level, let's think of the, the word employability, well, it's the ability to be employed. But, you know, then we can back up and say, well, you know, what does that really mean and how will we know? So, you know, the idea is someone's employable if they can succeed on the job market. So we're kind of implying that there is some set of personal resources that enables people to succeed in the job market, and that's something that they kind of carry with them and they can invest in and develop across time, but we we often think about it, and, you know, we can talk about maybe some issues with this, but we often think about it, employability, as a set of personal resources that enable people to succeed on the job market. So we have two pieces to it. We have the personal resource piece, and then we have the job market piece, and, you know, we need to think about how how the individual and how the job market interact, and, and you know, that's kind of what helps to inform our understanding of employability. In your article, or the one published in the Journal of Vocational Behavior, Movement, Capital, Raw Model, or Circumstances, mm-hmm. a meta-analysis of perceived employability predictors, you talk about perceived employability. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Right. That's a great question. And, and that gets back to the idea of, well, if someone's employable, how would we know? Um, we talk about this in research as maybe like a, a criterion problem. That is to say, you know, if we're trying to do research to figure out what makes someone employable, we need to have some way that we can measure someone's employability, that we have some standard that we can use to compare their personal characteristics to, right? So if I want to say, okay, let's study what makes you employable, what makes someone employable, I need a group of people, I need to measure things about them, and then I also need to measure, I need to score their employability somehow so I can compare those different predictors to their um, employability. So if we want to know if someone's employable, if we want to we have a group of people and we need to assign each of them a score that constant that suggests how employable they are, um, that's a tricky 
problem to address. And there's a few ways we can do it. They all have their pros and cons, and I'll tell you kind of where we stood for this particular paper and why. So the first thing we can do is we may say, oh, well, someone's employable if, you know, they're searching for a job and they find one. So if we have a group of people who are searching for jobs, we can say, well, the, the ones who found their jobs the fastest, maybe they're the most employable. Or we can say, well, the people who are who ultimately found a job, maybe they're the most employable. And that's a good point. There's definitely merit to that. But we also need to step back and say, well, why were those people searching for jobs in the first place? You know, we we could make a pretty compelling argument that, let's say, an organization is engaging in layoffs. Um, the people who are laid off, we then see, well, who finds the job the quickest? They're the most employable. Maybe they are the most employable of that group, but what about the people who were never laid off in the first place? You know, maybe they're the ones who are the most employable. So although these objective ways of figuring out who's employable are you know, they may seem desirable at the surface. There are issues there that are difficult to overcome because we're only studying a subset of people. The other thing we can do is, this isn't perfect either, but I think it, it it's a good option, and that's what we used in our paper, is to ask. How how You give someone a questionnaire that says, um, you know, if I were to look for a new job, I would find one quickly. Or there are a lot of job alternatives that are available to me. The idea here is that, you know, we have some understanding of our fit within the labor market, and we have some understanding of, um, you know, how easy or difficult a time we would happen to have on the job market. Listen, we live in a world where careers and are have become increasingly boundaryless. That is to say... You know, I doubt many of your listeners have worked at the same company their entire lives, right? Um, that used to be the norm. We had these what we called organizational careers where you worked with one employer for a long period of time and you were promoted and, and you know, they maybe took care of you in a sense. Um, but that's not really the way careers look today. Careers span across employers, and individuals cannot rely on long-term employment with a single organization in order to meet their career goals or even to ensure employment continuity across time. Um, you know, we saw that as just one potent example with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic when we've seen layoffs, the likes of which, you know, we may have never seen before. Uh, massive layoffs taking place. Individuals are well aware of the fact that they can't just sit back and rely on their current employer to provide for their needs across time. So, you know, they need to have some sense of what the job market looks like and how they fit within that job market. And that's really one reason why these perceived employability measures, that is to say, if we want to know how employable someone is, we give them a questionnaire that says, you know, I can find another job quickly. If I had to search for a new job, I'd be able to find one. Um, when we give people these perceived employability questionnaires, we think that we're probably getting a pretty decent metric of how likely this person, in fact, is to succeed on the job market. But, you know, I'd like to bring up one caveat, because your listeners may be, may be wondering, well, but aren't there biases and subjectivity and issues like that? 
Um, yes, there certainly are. So I'm not trying to suggest that any measurement of employability is perfect and that this is the perfect measurement. So what your listeners may be noticing, though, is or they may be wondering is that aren't there some perceptual biases here? You know, aren't there some people who may just think really well of themselves and they're biased to think that they um, – you know, they're biased to think that they have a lot of job opportunities or something like that. And that's definitely possible. I'm not trying to suggest that perceived employability is the perfect, most accurate way to measure employability. I'm just saying when you look at the alternatives, it stands out as a pretty good one. The other thing I'd like to bring up is that perceived employability in and of itself is important to understand from the perspective of individuals. So, For example, how employable I perceive myself as being matters because it motivates my behavior. If I think there's a lot of good alternatives available to me, I'm likely to maybe consider exercising them. This is kind of what we're seeing with the great resignation taking place right now. Um, I perceive there being alternative jobs for me. I may not love my current job, so maybe I am interested in pursuing some of those alternatives. So understanding how employable people perceive themselves as being is not only a pretty decent measure of employability generally, but it also is important in its own right. These employability perceptions, they're important in their own right because they motivate behavior. Um, I have another study that's not published yet where we find that the more employable employees perceive themselves as being, the less stress they experience. Why? Well, because they can cope with whatever work-related challenges come their way. They're not stressed about job insecurity, about the potential for layoffs. Um, They know that they are likely to land on their feet, so they're less stressed. So viewing oneself as employable is important. Understanding perceived employability is important, and it's also a very good measure of how employable people are. I'll I'll give a shout-out to another metric we may consider as representing employability. Um, it's not used as commonly, and we can certainly touch on this um, as we wish, but, you know, when it Employers make hiring decisions. They use a lot of different hiring procedures, but there's one that's more common than any of them. I doubt that any of your listeners have ever made a hiring decision without conducting a job interview. So we may also say, well, maybe the ability to do well in a job interview is what makes someone employable. We can know if someone's employable by how well they do in interviews. Um, I think that's interesting. That's an interesting area to explore. Um, but that hasn't really entered the literature yet as a way to think about employability. But I think there's a lot of merit there. That actually makes me think of all the conversation around the use of AI, artificial intelligence in human resources, so that instead of reviewing resumes and the materials submitted by prospective employees, they're using software to process and to filter out. And in addition to that, or 
at the same time as that, uh, they're also requesting that prospective employees submit videos of right. themselves. What can you tell us about that and its relationship to employability? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm happy you brought that up because, um, you know, I most of my career has been been centered in talent acquisition. So I've generally looked at hiring from the employer side, and I parlayed that into the study of employability by flipping it to the employee side. So I, I do have a lot of thoughts about this. First of all, when it comes to resume screening, I'm not opposed to the use of AI at all. In, in fact, I think AI use in resume screening, as long as it's screening on the, the appropriate basis, is probably going to be a big benefit to many employers. The reason being is that my general recommendation when it comes to screening resumes is to screen them objectively based on the presence of or absence of minimum qualifications. So in HR, there's a procedure we use called a job analysis. So everyone's familiar with job descriptions and job specifications. The job description outlines the job tasks. The job specification outlines the job's requirements. Those come from a procedure called a job analysis. And when we do our job analysis, we want to make sure that we're not just uncovering the job tasks, but that we're also uncovering all of the requirements that are needed to perform the job. Some of those requirements, like education and experience, can be gleaned in a resume, but most can't. You know, you can't really get a good sense of someone's knowledge or skills or abilities or their personality traits from a resume, but what you can know is their work history and their education history. So what certain types of AI may be very good at is helping to remove the subjective bias that can creep in when evaluating resumes. You know, we can easily get, we can have a job where the requirement is a bachelor's degree and two years of related experience. AI can screen very objectively and say, here are the resumes that have those characteristics, here are the resumes that don't. So then you could go to your yes pile and you can uh, use other procedures from there to decide who's going to get hired. Um, when we screen resumes subjectively, it's easy to get caught up in thinking like, oh, well, this person graduated from this university. Oh, this job requires two years of experience, but this one has three. So, you know, let's consider that better. You know, we when we make a hiring decision, we want to consider at the beginning specifically how we're going to make this decision, and then we just want to implement that to make an objective decision. The research tells us the more objective job-related decisions, the better. When we let our subjective biases creep in, it gets all the more difficult to make a good decision, even though it feels like we're in control. Now, with the interviews, um, I think that the artificial intelligence interviews, it depends on how they're implemented. So, for example, having a candidate record an interview, from the perspective of an employer, that could be good. If you have an objective set of questions, you, you know, you have a set of questions, all candidates are getting the same questions, they're given the same opportunity to respond, and they're being evaluated in a consistent manner. That's standardization. That's objectivity. That's what I like to see in a hiring procedure, as long as the questions are job-related, you know, meaning they, they're tapping into characteristics that are needed to succeed in the job and they're being evaluated fairly. 
What I don't like about the AI scored interviews is that they often score based on characteristics that are not job related at all, like facial movement, eye contact, posture. Um, you know, unless you're, unless there's a job that you're thinking of where those things matter, um, I would be very skeptical of the use of AI. I know it's tempting to use AI because, listen, interviews take a long time. Uh, they're resource intensive. They're not the easiest per procedure to use, uh, for sure. Um, but, you know, we should be moving in a direction where we are asking job-related questions and we're assigning candidates a score based on the proficiencies they're demonstrating. We should not be moving in a direction where we um, start to use job-irrelevant characteristics like eye contact and facial movements. And finally, there's another side to these things we need to consider, and it's something called the candidate experience. And this is all the more important now, given that so many companies are facing such difficulty finding the talent that they're looking for. Managing the candidate experience is all the more important. Um, let me define that. The candidate experience would be when the candidate is a job applicant, right? Someone's applying for a job with your organization. How are they being treated? Do they think that you are doing things in a fair way or in an unfair way? If they think you're doing things in an unfair way, they are much more likely to drop out of that applicant pool they, and to not be interested in accepting a job if it's it, if it is offered to them. In addition to that, they are likely to tell their friends and family, do not apply for a job with this organization. So managing the candidate experience is very important. When we take the personal elements out of the job interview and we start using AI, we start using the um, asynchronous interviews, like recording, candidates don't tend to like that as much. And that is something that employers may wish to consider. That's something to weigh against the increased efficiency. Yes, you're saving time. Excuse me. Yes, you're saving time. Yes, it's more efficient. However, you have candidates who may not like the experience. They may drop out. They may recommend that other people don't apply for jobs with your organization and in a time like we're in now, it's all the more important to make sure that that candidate experience is being managed appropriately. Um, I realize I didn't touch upon the employability piece. Um, I don't know if you have any follow-up questions before we want to get there. Definitely. Before we move further, one of the things, going back to AI, that has been very controversial, or at least that I've seen, is the discussion that there is a built-in bias in the mm -hmm. AI software because of flaws in the software or whoever has been writing the software and that those biases reflect the biases of the company or the software maker. I, I'm not really sure what the source of the biases is, but that the result is an inherent bias in that screening process that is leaving a lot of valid candidates out of the screening. Right. Um, yeah, so that's a really good point. You know, if someone is writing software with a particular bias, 
um, that's going to come through, you know, conceivably in the final scores assigned to candidates that are used to make the hiring decisions. And that's why I use this job-relatedness term so much. Anytime you're making a hiring decision, you will get a better decision if the tools you are using are related to the job. So, you know, let me give you an example. If I were going to hire a, I'm a college professor. So let's say I was going to hire a college instructor. And, you know, this person's job is to teach undergraduate classes in, let's say, human resource management. If I want to make a good, a good decision using job related tools, I may develop something that we call a work sample where I have this person come into a classroom and I have them deliver a 30-minute lecture, deliver do a 30-minute class on an HR-related topic. And whoever does the best, I can give the job. That's a job, clearly job-related way. If I were conducting an interview, I would, I would use my job analysis that tells me what, you know, what are the requirements of the job, what are some critical tasks of a college instructor, and I would ask some structured interview questions. I would maybe write a question that goes something like, tell me about a time when you dealt with a disruptive student. How did you deal with it? That's an important part of being a college instructor. Or I would say, um, tell me about a time when you had a student who had a difficult time understanding material. What did you do to help them? Uh, these are job-related screening questions. That's the key. And that's what, that's my issue with the AI. So if you start to, instead of, like I mentioned, you can use AI productively for screening resumes by sorting out those who do and do not have the objective minimum qualifications for the job. But when you start getting into screening out based on keywords being present in the resumes, well, that's what I have trouble with. Now you're getting into a biased decision. Um, similarly, when you are scoring interviews based on responses to job-related questions, that's fantastic. But when you're using AI to score interviews based on posture or eye contact, that's what I have a problem with, and that's where we see the bias come into play. Where does culture factor in? Not just the culture of the company, because, of course, you have the company that developed the software. Most companies, many companies, don't do their own software development for something like that. They buy it from someone else. So there may be a divide between the culture of whoever developed the software and the culture of the company that is using the software. And in addition to that, we now have an increasingly diverse society that we live in. And we have people sometimes coming in even from overseas, right. whether they've moved here from overseas or whether they're coming in digitally overseas. How do you deal with all of those cultural issues that come together in this situation? Yeah, I, I, that's a great point, and I think that's even a bigger issue as to these um, AI-based screening procedures, because different cultures have different norms. Different cultures have different norms related to greetings, related to eye contact, um, related to how to behave in an interview. And when you start making your hiring decisions based on those characteristics, 
now you are unfairly excluding members of particular cultural backgrounds. Versus if I asked an objective job-related question in an interview, and I scored based on how they would respond to a job-related situation, now um, I kind of neutralize that. You see, all these things that take place in an interview, the eye contact, the handshake, the posture, um, in, in, in a lot, in, an, in a synchronous interview, like a person interviewing another person, whether it be digitally or in person, it does matter. Those things do affect hiring decisions. And, you know, the people who coach on interviews and say, start with a, you know, maybe you wouldn't do this uh, these days, but start with a firm handshake, make good eye contact. Um, have questions prepared about the company. Those things all do seem to influence hiring decisions, but the point I'm making is maybe they shouldn't. Um, maybe what your listeners should consider is let's think about what is fundamentally required to do this job and screen exclusively on those characteristics so that we're not going to hire the extrovert who makes makes good eye contact and has a good handshake, but may be less skilled over the introvert who is highly skilled and proficient and will make the ideal hire if we do hire them. Uh, the key for me is the job description and the job specification should lead everything we do. So then cultural variation doesn't matter as much. You know, one thing to bring up when it comes to diversity, we were talking about, uh, you know, essentially national origin diversity, but age diversity is something we should consider as well. Um, you know, older individuals are, have uh, been plunged into a high-tech environment that they were not raised with, like people like myself were. I'm not trying to promote a, a stereotype that older people are less adept with technology. That, that certainly isn't the case uh, across the board. It just is the case that I personally was raised with technology. I, I barely have any memories of not having a computer. Whereas someone who was introduced to computers later in life and now is recording interviews, doing asynchronous interviews where their facial movements are being recorded and things like that, I think there's a lot of opportunity for bias there as well, just simply due to comfort with technology. And in addition to that, you have issues of privacy or perceived privacy mm -hmm. and who owns that content? So say, for example, that an applicant does a video and submits it. Does the company own the video? Does the person who recorded it own the video? If that company uses the video for another purpose that the applicant did not expect, what does that mean? What legal implications? Yeah, that's a great question. To be honest, I don't know that these issues have been hashed out. Um, this is, there are really, you're, you're speaking my language here because I'm on the ethics review board committee here at FAU for research. Um, so, you know, when it comes to ethics of data collection, it's something that I'm very interested in. And we're in, in a lot of respects, uh, uncharted, uncharted territory, right? Um, you know, what's happening with this data that's being collected? Who owns it? What could it be used for? Um, you know, there are a lot of question marks as I as I see it. And this, you know, I wish I had a firm answer for you, but I think there are some issues that need to be hashed out here. It's specifically when you talked about the differences in gender and the comfort 
with technology, it's there is also a very I'm not sure the word is clearly marked, but there's definitely a difference in comfort in terms of sharing personal information online and on social media, well, across different groups of people, but specifically across generations that have grown up with that, that are native to that, and people who are not. And so there's, of course, many companies that do research on candidates by looking at their social media. Is that going to count against a candidate if someone doesn't have a social media profile? How is that factored into the employability and the AI and the interview? That's a great question. So fortunately, I don't think that many companies or I don't see many companies using social media screening to render hiring decisions. That's a whole can of worms. I mean, if we're talking about making hiring decisions in a way that's not job related and that introduces a lot of bias, uh, using social media screening is up there on the list. Um, I'm not suggesting that we can't glean anything from social media, but, you know, the idea that we're going to look at someone's social media account and make a good hiring decision is farcical, I, I have to say. Um, I will say that from an employability side, um, LinkedIn matters. Um, I could see that, you know, one's how one portrays his or herself on LinkedIn, you know, if you're portraying yourself unprofessionally on a professional social media network, that is likely to adversely affect your employability. And similarly, simply having the account and being active on the account is going to enhance one's employability when you factor in that recruiters do search for candidates through LinkedIn. Um, you know, many of your listeners may have been contacted by recruiters through LinkedIn who saw their bio data there, um, thought they could be a good fit for a position, so they reached out to them. So this is you know, your employability is your ability to succeed on the job market. So if someone has recruiters passively, has recruiters reaching out to them, well, that person's more employable than someone who doesn't. That person's in a position where there are jobs out there where people are approaching them with those jobs. Um, so having a LinkedIn presence is valuable. In fact, you were, you know, we're talking about the age piece here. My research did suggest that the older someone is, the less employable they are. Um, and that's consistent with research across the board. Uh, so my study suggested the older someone is, the lower their perceived employability is, which, as we discussed, is a pretty good metric of their employability. But the same thing with the job seeking. If you take a group of people who are searching for a job, you can predict who's going to find a job the fastest in part by their age. The younger they are, the faster they'll find a job. The older they are, the longer it will take them. I'm not saying that that's all accounted for by a LinkedIn presence, obviously. It's definitely not. But it, it does hearken to that idea that, you know, the older individuals do face many barriers on the job market and do have reduced employability. So there's an, there's built-in discrimination is what I'm hearing you say. They feel that they're less employable, but it's not just that they think that. It's that it's real. Oh, yeah. If you flip that around, it means that if you look at the profile of a company that hasn't hired anyone over whatever age, 
that there's a budding lawsuit, for example, in the works because it's a clear pattern of discrimination. That's a great point because, you know, we do have the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which makes it unlawful to discriminate in any employment decision that would include hiring against individuals who are 40 or, or older. So, you know, there is the potential to where if you have an employer, because here's the difficulty. On an individual basis, let's say I'm an older person, I'm job seeking, and I'm not getting any bites. Um, is that due to discrimination or is it not? You know, in an individual basis, you can't really tell. But if you have an employer that is that is consistently making these decisions that disfavor older workers, as you noted, then that's where you could see the class action lawsuit come into play. And I'll just make another pitch to your listeners. This is, again, one of the many reasons why we want to make our hiring decisions in a job-related way. That is to say, we want to let the job description and job specification guide our decisions because uh, that's going to make it much less likely that we are discriminating because it's our subjective biases creeping in that leads to the discrimination. If we're making our decisions objectively based on job-related criteria, not only are we less likely to be discriminating and not only are we more likely to be making better decisions, but we're also going to be in a better position to defend ourselves in case we do act, you know, there is some unintentional screening out of members of, of any, let's say, age-related group or something like that. Um, we do things as perfectly as we can, but there is a form of discrimination that we study called disparate impact discrimination, which is essentially like unintentional discrimination, and using job-related procedures is the best way, to, is the best defense against that. Not only is it going to make it less likely that any discrimination is happening, but if there is some accidental discrimination, at least you can go back to the courts and say, you know, we did everything as, you know, we did it all the right way. The problem is if you're, if you're screening subjectively, you're not using job-related criteria to make your decisions, and you're accidentally discriminating, you're going to be in much more trouble. Well, for example, if you are looking to hire people who are not going to be working in a technology environment, mm -hmm. is it reasonable to require them to use technology tools to go through that interview and employment process? Is that a form of disparate impact? That's a great question. I, I would say that would not be an appropriate way to make that hiring decision. Um, you know, and if, if, your decision, if your hiring decision did result in accidental discrimination, you would not have a defense. You know, um, you would not have a defense there because you are using tools, as you just noted in your example, that are not job related. Um, now, with that said, many jobs do require technology skills. And from the employability piece, I always recommend that candidates stay abreast of the technological developments in their area. And if anyone is listening who wants to maintain their employability, I'm going to give a tip. There's a website, Occupational Information Network. Actually, this is a website that both employers and employees should be familiar with. Occupational Information Network, onetonline.org. This is organized by the Department of Labor it's an automated job analysis database where you can go in and get essentially a job description and specification for any job just by punching in the job title. 
Now, there's a section for each job that says technology skills. For anyone who wants to maintain their employability, I, whatever your area is, whatever job it is you're currently working in or you're interested in working in, find that job on ONET, look at the technology skills, and develop those technology skills. It will make you substantially more employable to have those skills. What was that website again? It's ONET, O-N-E-T, online.org, and it's a fantastic resource. Let's talk about gender a little bit, because now the field is increasingly murky. We've talked about age. We've talked about generation within age, uh, technology. Gender, we now have two genders, maybe three, Mm -hmm. or a third undefined category. We have a pay gap for women. Um, looking at a Wall Street Journal article from earlier this year that says there is undeniably a very large mm-hmm. gap in pay between the genders. How does all that come into play with employability and perceived employability? That's a really good question. You know, we expected that we might find some gender differences. We thought that perhaps, uh, you know, our argument was that females – there's a uh, a stereotype that, you know, males are the breadwinners, right? And females are, are more the caretakers. And, um, you know, that, that perception tends to lead to males to be perceived as more suited for paid work. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of like the stereotype of the man going out to work and the woman's the home taker. So that should manifest, may manifest in employability differences that, you know, if I'm a female and I know I face these barriers, well, then I'm not as employable, right? If I, if I'm, if it's harder for me to find a job because hiring managers may have these biases, it's going to be more difficult. However, the evidence in support of gender differences in employability is just not there. We did not see any evidence to suggest that males are more employable than females. In fact, the the difference was so small to not really mean anything, but technically females emerged as slightly more employable than males. I wouldn't put any weight in that, though, because the difference is so small that we should just say there is no difference. Um, we were surprised by that, and, you know, that's something that needs to be unpacked more. Is it that, you know, you have the stereotypical so-called pink-collar jobs, right? Like you have jobs that tend to be male-dominated, and you have jobs that tend to be female-dominated. So is that why one reason why we're not seeing any differences in employability? Because men and women may have an equally easy or hard time as finding, of finding jobs, but just maybe it's in different areas. You know, that's one idea there. And something else that needs to be unpacked, you know, there's a lot of research to suggest that 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 gender wage gap is much more robust for women who have had children, um, you know, suggesting that maybe it has a lot to do with time out of the labor force, uh, you know, associated with having children. So I wonder if there's something there, if maybe we need to look at employability by gender, we need to look at kind of like, 
pre versus post having children, if we need to stratify by age, I'm just thinking out loud there might be something there because women do seem to unfortunately face a penalty in the workplace for um, becoming mothers, that men do not face such a penalty for becoming fathers. The article talks a little bit about that, but it seems to emphasize an inherent bias in the company structure that gives more responsibility to men mm-hmm. and therefore results in long-term, you know, you, you start out with a pay gap and less responsibility, and so eventually... That makes, that makes a lot of sense. You know, uh, there is, again, a stereotype that males are the leaders, and, you know, we see that the males are much more likely to be top executives at organizations. Um, so, you know, I can see that being given more responsibilities. I, I'd be interested in reading that article. That's an argument that, that I haven't been exposed to before, but it makes intuitive sense. I can give you the title. The pay gap for women starts with a responsibility gap. Ah, interesting. Okay, yeah, I'll t- take a look at that. That's fascinating. Wall Street Journal, October 16th to 17th, 2021. Great. Well, hopefully your listeners find that article is interesting as well. Let's go back to something that you said a minute ago when you talked about the pink collar. Okay, yes. So how does the the employability and all of these issues that we're talking about center around working for someone or hiring someone come into play in relation to the type of job, meaning a blue collar, a white collar, a pink collar, et cetera. Yeah, that's another thing we considered um, because we were trying to to understand, you know, uh, there's this argument that the um, job market is stratified, that you kind of have the primary market, which are like your white collar workers, your full time workers, your your uh, t- uh, permanent workers, who are the ones who should be the most employable, and, and you know because they're in this the labor market stratified and they're in the main one, they're in that labor market you want to be in, where there's this secondary labor market that people get stuck in. And they're working part-time, you know, piecing jobs together, trying to get by. They're on temporary contracts. They have no job security. Um, they're more likely to be blue-collar. Um, we didn't see much with the so-called pink-collar jobs, but, you know, we were able to look at the white-collar versus versus blue-collar. They're more likely to be blue-collar. And these should be the people who you would think of as being less employable, but we did not find any evidence for that either. Um, full-time, part-time, white-collar, blue-collar, all emerged as being equally employable. And I, you know, I would guess that the same would be true for that so that quote-unquote pink-collar class of jobs, you know, which would be like education and, and nursing, et cetera. Uh, the same would probably be true there, since we, there was no blue-collar, white-collar difference. There was no male-female difference. I would imagine that the white, the blue, the pink-collar jobs, probably all equivalent in terms of their employability. But the question is that we weren't able to address, how easy or difficult is it for someone to move from a blue-collar job to a white-collar job? From a full-time, from a part-time position to a full-time position. From a temporary position to a permanent position. 
I'd imagine that's where the difficulty is. So what we could have been picking up in our data is that, you know, someone who's working in a part-time job can just as easily find another part-time job as someone who's working in a full-time job can find another full-time job. Um, we don't know about transitions between. What importance does geography have in this employability discussion that we're having, because being in Idaho versus being in New York or, you know, pick a place, is very different from an employer's perspective and an employee's perspective. And now those lines have gotten very blurred. Yeah. Yeah. So geography is a huge issue um, in employability. And, and I'd also say I mean, maybe less important now, at least for, for you know, white-collar work um, or office work, geographic mobility as well. You see, um, one of the reasons we speculated, because, okay, age, there's an age discrimination factor for sure. You know, the older someone is, the more discrim- they're going to face discrimination on the job market, no doubt about it. But, well, I shouldn't be so, be so, uh, Conclusive there, in all likelihood. I, I think there's there's a discriminatory effect, and that's why we see employability reduce with age. But something else happens as we age. We become embedded in our communities, right? Um, I own a home. I don't want to have to sell it and move. My kids go to school here. I don't want to move and for them to leave their friends. The more geographically mobile someone is, the more employable they're going to be, because as you noted, jobs, at least traditionally, are location-bound. And um, take take me, for instance. I'm an HR professor at a university in Boca Raton, Florida. I am the only uh, HR professor at, at said university, at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, when there was someone else who was working as an HR professor there. They retired. They ran a job search. They hired me. If I wanted to find a new job, I would have to move. Um, and that would mean taking my daughter out of school and away from her friends. It would mean selling my house. Um, I don't want to do that. I'm pretty embedded. So my employability is lower than someone who is less embedded and more geographically mobile. Um, so we can't separate, you're bringing up a good point because we talk about employability. We often think about it as like a personal resource, one's ability to exceed on the job market, but the job market is half of the definition, right? Your ability to succeed where on the job market. So we need to really think about characteristics of that job market and where geographically the jobs are plays a huge role that can't be denied. So if you're in an area where there are more jobs, you're without changing anything about yourself, you just became more employable because the jobs are there. So employability is not just a personal resource. Um, so we also need to consider where are the jobs? Can we move to where the jobs are? And these days, do we even need to move where jobs are? I mean, the number of remote jobs for for take your pick, any type of office work, have exploded. And I mean, I particularly wonder what's that going to mean for, what does that mean for the employability of older workers as they are the ones who are more likely to be embedded? So there may have been 
some cons because perhaps the older workers are facing more discrimination from a uh, technological perspective, you know, the, the belief, the stereotype, the unfair stereotype that employ that older employees are less technologically adept. Um, there's issues there, but there's also the benefit of being able to overcome the embeddedness by finding remote work. That's the next issue that I wanted to discuss on this in the same area, as it were, It's this concept of remote work, because not every job lends itself to remote work, but many of the jobs might be done remotely part of the time or all of the time. And yet, I'm seeing that there's a lot of talk on the part of prospective employees people who have quit their jobs, saying, I don't want to commute two hours each way anymore. I don't want to miss out being with my children and my husband or my wife. And the technology companies on the one corner that have said, some of them, that their employees can continue working remotely part-time or full-time or, you know, going in some sort of hybrid – But on the whole, the vast majority of the things that I see out there are not offering remote work opportunities. The employers themselves are still bound to the old approach. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, you do see that. But we also see a labor, a big time labor shortage. You know, we, the assumption has been That, you know, at the start of the pandemic, when everything went remote and then employers started to see, well, this can be done, the assumption was that employers were going to make the decision about whether or not to repopulate. Um, I think that what we see with the great resignation, with the labor shortage, is that it's not necessarily up to the employers. The employers need to satisfy the market uh, of job seekers. And Now that job seekers know, or employees and job seekers know how good it is to work remotely, they have the opportunity to seek out those employers who are offering that flexibility, and more, especially given the the labor shortage we're experiencing, more employers are going to have to follow suit if that's what the market demands. Now, If the market doesn't demand that, if they're comfortable with the return to work and their commute and they're willing to go along with it, then more employers may end up going that route instead. You know, although remote work has worked out, has worked out really well, not all companies are on board for a few reasons. Um, uh, you know, I'll speculate a little bit. One is sunk cost. For instance, there's a large employer near where I live that just built a new facility. And you better believe they're itching to get their people back in there. There's no way they're going to just abandon this new office building they constructed. You know, uh, you know, think of all the resources that went into it and, and all they've done to get that prepared. They, they want to use the resources that they are paying for. And the other thing is many managers perhaps dislike the lack of control they have over their workforce. You know, you don't really know who's doing what when. Uh, during the remote work. Now, I think that more and more workers, though, are demanding remote work. 
or various forms of flexible work. That is, if you look at surveys during this great resignation we're experiencing, a reasonable percentage of people are reporting leaving their jobs for remote options. So I think it's one area where if employer, employers who are faced with labor shortages who are feeling the crunch, there is no way around it. They will have to uh, consider at least remote work as an option for attracting and retaining top talent. Listen, there's a lot of ways you can attract and retain top talent. You do it by giving them what they want. And that can be pay in the form of direct compensation, in the form of benefits, in the form of incentives. But it can also be perks in the form of remote work or flexible work. Um, and that certainly, even if it's not going to be the trend that's here to stay, we're, there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to be seeing a lot more remote work than we have any time before the pandemic. That's for sure. There's been reports in the news of companies that have been lowering their standards that used to require a high school degree or a university degree that are now doing away with that entirely, that are looking at hiring applicants that they would not have considered before that are reaching out to people who apply to jobs. I think I read an article the other day as far back as seven years earlier. Somebody had applied for a job, and the company called and says, you know that job seven years ago that you wanted? Uh, would you like it now? So they're, they're lowering the standards, but are they offering opportunities for remote work? Are you seeing that, or do you think it's – is it going to happen, or are you seeing that it's happening now? Because that, that was sort of the issue that I was getting to, that I'm not seeing – I'm seeing people want that, but I'm not seeing the companies providing it. So I am seeing more than what I've seen in the past, but you are right. It's not the wave of remote work that you would expect. Um, one reason for this could be that a number of the areas that are experiencing shortages of workers – are also the jobs where there's simply, it's not possible to work remotely. You know, I can't remember the last time I've walked by any retail establishment or restaurant or hotel without seeing a help wanted sign uh, in the doorway or a now hiring sign. Uh, these are jobs where working remotely is simply not a possibility. You know, where are you seeing the biggest shortages? You are seeing it in food services. You're seeing it in retail, and you're seeing it in hospitality. So one of the reasons, you know, although we see this great resignation, this great job market, it also depends a lot on the jobs we're talking about. Not every employer is experiencing a shortage. Um, I, I poll my students all the time because I have students who work for all kinds of uh organizations, and I have some students, I'm not going to call out any particular employers, but who work for employers um, who are known to be good employers, and they're in industries that haven't really had big setbacks in terms of labor shortages, and they're telling me, if anything, they're overstaffed. You know, they may have too many people, and people aren't getting the hours that they want. So I think we need to understand that the Great Resignation, this huge labor shortage, it's not affecting everyone equally. And some of the employers 
that are not meeting market demands. It may be because they don't have to, because they're not in those those industries that are experiencing shortages. But if there's an em- employer out there who is experiencing a shortage on labor, they're having difficulty, and their jobs can be done remotely, that's an affordable option that they mis- may wish to consider that can help to entice potential candidates over because I personally know of many people who are looking for remote jobs and the data support it that you see in the surveys. So we were talking a minute ago about the the fact that many of the jobs that have to be done in person might be where the less availability of remote work exists because there's not a lot of flexibility there. So if we look at the other side of the spectrum, those people who are professionals who are licensed in a particular state so that they can only practice in that state, what role does remote work play there? So, for example, can you have someone who's a lawyer licensed in Florida but is actually sitting in Connecticut? What does that mean? Or a doctor who's licensed in California but is sitting you know in what? London? I'll, I'll, I'll have to pass on this one. That's a great question. I, uh, I am clueless. You're, I'm as stumped as you are there. Because many of these uh, right to work, let's call it, that's what the license is. It allows someone to work in a particular geographic location now those lines are getting blurred, right? We're getting medicine from overseas. Yeah, you know, I wish I was was familiar with those laws and regulations. I'm just not. So I don't know exactly how that all functions and to the, ex- the extent to which maybe legislation is needed to help to relax any requirements to allow these things. But, see, my understanding is that the person – they're licensed to practice as in a particular state, and my understanding is that they could live in a different state and practice in the state that they are licensed to practice in, but I don't want to go on record there because I'm not positive. If we look at these changes that are taking place that relate to the great resignation, that relate to the availability of technology and our population's better knowledge and access of technology with all the native digitals that we have entering into the workforce. What role does the loss of all of these older employees with experience and knowledge that have been exiting the workforce, specifically during the pandemic, how is that going to affect the workforce? And specifically, how is that going to affect employability because over time won't some of those who are still left become more valuable because they have this added maturity and added knowledge that we're losing yeah you know that's kind of a a big issue that came up with the pandemic where you had a lot of older workers resigning in a you know a shorter span of time with, or, you know, resigning, let's say resigning or being laid off or just simply exiting the workforce um, at, in a short span of time in a way that couldn't be predicted. You see, what any organization hopefully is considering 
when it comes to the aging of their workforce is succession planning and knowledge transfer. So you're bringing up this very important idea, which is that your more senior workers who have been there for a period of time, they house within them a lot of a lot of knowledge, um, not simply the technical aspects of how the job is done, but the history of the organization. They understand why things are done the way that they are. They understand what the pitfalls might be of changing something. You know, maybe a newer employee comes in and says, oh, this should be done this way. But the more senior employee knows, oh, well, you know, when we did that in the past, we had this issue. So we changed it to this way. And there's this regulation that requires us to do it like that. So um there's a big loss there. See, because normally you would have knowledge transfer taking place. The younger employees would learn from the older employees, um, and that would hopefully be facilitated by the organization through some form of knowledge transfer, formal knowledge transfer program, um, succession planning, and the like. But what happened during the uh, onset of the pandemic with the layoffs, with the resignations, with the general exiting of the workforce of people who are nearing retirement age, is that a lot of that institutional knowledge has simply been lost. So organizations, to the extent that they have those resources still within, they need to make a sustained effort to try to set up succession planning programs, to try to ensure that the knowledge that's possessed by the older employers is passed down, you know, some form of mentorship, uh, formal or informal mentoring program would be very valuable there. And, you know, um, when it comes to employability, the thing is that we can look at employability in two ways. See, we think about employability external. I can find a job with another organization if I have to. But employability also manifests itself internally. Employability often man, excuse me, employability also manifests itself internally. So, um, if we, we can think about employability as getting a job at another organization, but we can also think about it as getting a, another job at the same organization. The newer level, the newer employees who are able to succeed in e- extracting knowledge from their more senior, uh, coworkers from understanding that institutional knowledge that may not make them more employable for other firms, but it will make them more employable at their current firm. They will be more likely to be retained if there are, is downsizing or layoffs. They'll be more likely to be eligible for promotions or for transfers. So there is relevance from employability for, from the employability perspective there. What is a reasonable expectation on the part of on the one column, the employer, and on the part of the employee or the prospective employee. In other words, when you are looking at your employability as a prospective employee or if you're an employer and you're looking to hire someone, what is reasonable for you to expect in terms of qualifications, skills, experience, etc. Because there there also seems to be a divide there that seems to come into play with this whole employability discussion we're having. You know, somebody lists a job ad that 
expects the person to tap dance, be able to juggle, do the high ropes, and all do it with a blindfold. And meanwhile, there's the people looking for jobs that are saying, uh, no, I, I want to work six hours a week. I'm exaggerating for effect, but you see what I'm saying? And I want to only do the tightrope. Yeah. Um, so I have a few thoughts there. One is I think that employers often – uh, in many cases, they put way too much emphasis on the education and experience requirements, especially the experience. When I think about education and experience requirements for a job, I think legitimately what is the absolute minimum education and experience required in order to perform this job safely and effectively? That's it. Um, any employer who's listening who stretches that I think you're making a mistake because you could be making your minimum screening decisions based, you know, based on those, um, the you making your initial screening decisions ra rather based on those minimum qualifications. And then you can use better techniques to make better hiring decisions. So I think employers need to set their expectations for experience and education exactly where their job analysis tells them it should be, exactly where their job specification says it should be, and no higher. Um, and then after that, you know, you're asking, well, what's appropriate for employers to want in terms of skills, in terms of knowledge, and this and that? At that point, I would say it's all relative. Because you're not dealing with a hypothetical ideal candidate pool. You're dealing with the candidate pool that you have. And you need to be thinking about how am I going to, you know, I have a 100 people in my applicant pool. You need to think critically. How am I going to figure out which one, if you're only hiring one, which one has, let's just say, the highest level of the knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics needed to succeed. You're not going to decide that based on their education or based on their experience. You're going to decide that using other screening procedures like knowledge tests, like work samples, like situational judgment tests, like job interviews, all of them assuming they're well-constructed and job-related. Um, you know, you, we can have excuse me, we can have a whole podcast episode just on these different predictors or these different, let me frame it as hiring procedures and job-related hiring decisions. But, you know, employers need to say, what are what's the knowledge, what are the skills that are absolutely critical for performing this job effectively? Let me measure them and let me hire the candidate with the highest score on those measurements. And that's the one who's likely to perform the job the best. So in that way, it's all relative based on the candidate pool that you have. When it comes to employees, I would say that it depends. It depends on how employable you are. Honestly, if you have a lot of options, you can be very selective and you could try to negotiate with prospective employers. You know, if I'm really employable, I have a few offers, well, let me start with this one. I'm going to try to negotiate some terms. I want flexibility. I want this. I want that. Well, you're not going to give it to me. Well, you know, I'm going to keep looking because I'm employable. Whereas someone who really needs the job doesn't have that flexibility. Doesn't mean they're just stuck with the job as it is. They can still rely on something that we call job crafting. Job crafting is 
proactively redesigning one's job oneself. So many employers are very happy to work with their employees to help to shape their job in a way that they would prefer. Um, and that is certainly on the table, even if the job that you get isn't exactly the job that you want. Over time, you can try to craft it. You can try to work with your employer to help to make it more like the job that you want. Mike, thank you for joining us from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It is my absolute pleasure. I had a great time. And to our audience, you have been listening to Michael Harari, Ph.D., who is an associate professor at the Management Programs Department at Florida Atlantic University, who discussed employability. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.